Good morning again. Good morning. Good morning. Just a reminder to leave your uh, cell phone ringing. All right, carry on. I think we can get back from that. Everyone's thinking, glad it wasn't me. Good job. If you're visiting, my name is Peter. I serve on the team of elders that leads this church, and I have the privilege of preaching God's word today. We're in week seven of our series, The Story of the Bible. Now, in any context, it is so easy for us as human beings to hear a story and simultaneously miss the whole point of the story. We do this in everything, and how much more tragic albeit common, when we do it with the story of stories in the Bible. Now we're almost halfway through the Bible, halfway through our topical tour of the Bible. We've been doing a, a topic with the letter C all throughout from creation to culmination. And today the topic is conceit. Conceit. We've come to a major false climax of the story of the Bible, the story of humanity. False climax in the vanity, or here's an old school word for you, the vainglory in the rule of King Solomon in Israel. He was the son of David, and the conceit of his later days, his latter days, is the quintessential example of missing the point. I'm going to ask you to stand your feet with me to honor God's word. Word to the book of Ecclesiastes. So, in the Bible, it's kind of, in the middle is Psalms, and then there's Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes. So, we'll be Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I'll read verses 1 through 11. This is King Solomon. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what is good for the children of man to do under the heaven. During the few days of their life, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I, that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving 
after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. The word of God. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, please add a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word that's beyond our presumptions about you and about life. And Lord, even more powerful than our habits. Help us to really behold true greatness in you and in knowing you and, and growing as your disciples and help us in context of that to see the alternatives of greatness for what they are. Preserve us from the death of those other forms of greatness. Amen. I'm gonna bring a rather long introduction into this to set the stage for Ecclesiastes 2, and then I'm gonna walk through our passage and drive home one important takeaway. So here goes. Starting with the word university that's in our culture. This, this word university was adopted just a few hundred years ago, right after the Enlightenment. University is somewhat of a new word in human culture. It comes from the humanistic desire to find unity within diversity, and thus the contraction of sorts, university. And I have to ask, how are we as a Western world doing with this whole ideal of university? I mean, look no further than to our social and political world that we're in. And you can see that we are divided. We have not achieved university of any sort. And it's futile that we keep putting up this idea of progression that we continue to fail in. But the Bible, the Bible itself, which has gone through very many different cultures in world history, I believe displays this beautiful university with an unrivaled brilliance that stands way above the cultures that it stands in authority over that have failed to display this sort of university. Let me just explain why. The Bible, even though the Judeo-Christian heritage of the Bible comes from one geographic place, the Middle East. I was gonna say Alabama, no, the Middle East. It comes from one geographic place, but the Bible itself was written on three different continents over a span of about three different millennia in two different languages, Hebrew and Greek, with, with echoes of other languages like the Assyrian language and Persian and Aramaic, kind of like a modern Hebrew. There's so much diversity, and yet, nonetheless, there's one story that it tells of a God that creates humanity, of a creation that blatantly rebels against God, and about the God who nonetheless saves, restores, redeems humanity through the sacrifice of his perfect son. This is one story and a diversity of voices. Now, it's really, really easy to miss the whole point of the story. And it's important to rightly distinguish the different points of reference in the story 
and not miss the forest for the trees. People often bring false equivalencies, fallacies, misunderstandings to the Bible. I'll show you one of them. I'm sure you've heard one like this. They'll say, well, the Bible initially prohibited the consumption of pork, but later in the New Testament, that prohibition was overturned. Therefore, the same is in regards to you know, the Bible and how it initially prohibited what we would think are regressive sexual prohibitions. This is a false equivalency. Because, look, the genre of the moral law, which is in the Bible, pertains to sexual deviance. It's consistent all throughout the Bible, whereas the genre of ceremonial law, which is different than the moral law, it's also in the Bible. It starts with the sacrifice of animals and the Levitical priesthood and purification for these priests. But it changes in the Bible when the perfect priest makes the one final sacrifice after having lived the perfect life and being perfectly ceremonially pure, he makes a sacrifice for our impurity and does away with the ceremonial law on the cross. Even as he frees us to be rid of that and to follow the moral law, which none of us could do on our own. So in, in one sacrifice in this story, Jesus is able to redeem both the moral law and the ceremonial law in very different and yet opposite ways. There's one story in the Bible of Jesus redeeming things to be as they ought so that we could live for greatness as he defines it. One story in a diversity of voices. And let me remind you of the story, our, our run through, real quick run through of our Topics that start with the letter C. In creation, God made us for extreme pleasure and walking with him. But then quickly, the catastrophe. Genesis 3, we thought we could do better than God at the whole ruling the earth and ourselves thing. And in essence, God let us try to do better than him. And it's been a terrible experiment for thousands of years. Hatred, abuse, perversion, sin, death. And then the calling that God would call out a people from himself from among all of us rebellious creation and call us into a blessing through the seed of Abraham to bless those who've cursed him. This should be confounding when we think about it every time. And then these people, the descendants of Abraham, go into Egypt, suffer for 400 years slavery, and God defines the relationship. In the covenant, God calls these people out of Egypt and into a relationship of covenant, of agreement through Moses. Now, I want to stop here and pause because this is a part of the story that we didn't have enough time to really dig into, but I want to make a comment on. And that is when God calls the people out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery, he then goes to tell these people of promise to enter the promised land, what we know as the conquest of Canaan. Now, they, they were to enter into the land that they inhabited for, for a long time before their 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And their return to the land that several centuries was ugly. This is one of the ugly, difficult parts of the Bible. I'm going to say it openly. But I want to be very clear. It's ugly because we're ugly. 
Not because God and his word is ugly. There's a lot of parts of the Bible that are ugly because human sin is ugly. The sinfulness of the Canaanite people. The sinfulness of God's people, us, as we fulfill his promise, we get ugly. The Bible's often ugly because we're ugly, not because God is. They were told to go in and drive out the evil of the land and the conquest of Canaan, but instead they began to intimately embrace the evil and the idolatry themselves and suffered the bitter consequences of it. And so instead of returning their hearts to the king, they sought a different earthly king. And this is where we get to what Alberto powerfully preached about last week, the crown, the crown. God rejected the outer appearance of the world's idea of what a leader was, and he chose David to be king because of David's heart. Now, getting closer to our text, years after David died, and years after Solomon took the crown, and the kingdom had expanded under Solomon, the whole point of this inside-out blessing, where God blessed David, not because of outer appearance, but because of his heart, This began to be lost on Solomon. In all of his blessing, he lost the point of the story. And so often in our blessed country, we can miss the blessing for the blessing as well. He became conceited with the blessing. So in context of this, let's consider Ecclesiastes. Thinking of the various genres of the Bible, Ecclesiastes is one of the trickiest Books of the 66 books of the Bible and the most commonly misunderstood. Sometimes I hear, I see people quoting Ecclesiastes, something from Ecclesiastes as if God endorses that idea when it's exactly the opposite. And this is maybe under, maybe it's a, a common mistake and maybe not a big deal if it's done in ignorance, but it would be like me quoting the new Testament where it says Judas went and hung himself. Hashtag God supports that. No, God's not for suicide. Okay, never in the Bible is that a thing. And if we understand Ecclesiastes right, we'll understand that the mention in the Bible of a person or an action or a behavior is not an endorsement of the same. We need to slow down and read more carefully. Now, in a nutshell, knowing all this, here's what Ecclesiastes is. Ecclesiastes is a painful book that depicts the confusion, the heartache, and the disillusionment of a blessed man who abandons his God. Now, there's no shame in not having known that before you read Ecclesiastes. No shame. But now you know. And now we can have a more careful look at the book as it relates to the greater story of the Bible And if you dare, as it relates to your own life and to your own sin, I encourage you, not just dare you. Lord, help us. You see, Solomon's dad, again, was the greatest king in the Old Testament. And it's not because of his exploits. It was because despite his many flaws, his heart for the merciful God, he knew he needed mercy. And I pray that we would never lose that. In fact, that we would know more about our need as we grow in it. Solomon's dad, David, knew he needed 
God's mercy. And God blessed that. He actually made an eternal promise to bless David and his descendants. So by the time Solomon takes the throne, Israel is in this like bull market of growth because of the favor of God on the descendants of David. And he asks Solomon, he says, God says to Solomon, ask for me whatever you want. See, he's wanting to bless Solomon in the kingdom because of David. And Solomon, as a young man, responds so well. He says, God, I need wisdom. Now check out God's response in 1 Kings 3 to Solomon's response. God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or life for your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and understanding mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor so that no other king shall compare to you all your days. You see, he got wisdom and everything else. I think God was so pleased with Solomon's priorities that I think God also knew that wisdom has a way of driving prosperity. God gave them direct prosperity, but I also believe that the prosperity came out of the seed of wisdom. I mean, think about our day today modern businesses or even nations in the world today. Some of the places richest in natural resources and capacity to build wealth are some of the most impoverished nations in the world. And one of the main reasons is because of the lack of help, not just in the area of money, but the lack of help in the area of wisdom. That's been the story in my life. It's not been like I just lack stuff. I just was stupid a lot. Still am sometimes, but God's helping me. We need wisdom. Wisdom from God drives prosperity and wellness. Solomon got rich on the inside and it manifested externally. And he got wisdom and everything else came with it. And then that was the tricky part. He started to just bathe in that everything else thing instead of using it to bless others like the story had told him to do for hundreds of years. See, everything else can lie to you. If you let it, Solomon actually became one of the richest men in history. I mean, his wealth probably rivaled Africa's Mansa Musa. He was that rich. And at some point he began to take his eyes off of the giver of the blessing. And he, he started to think that he earned it all himself. Again, the Bible to me, when I read it slowly, it's kind of difficult in that it's way too easy to relate to for me. The good things in Solomon's life slowly began to become God things in his life. And he embraced idolatry in his heart and started endorsing idolatry, both explicit idolatry and implicit idolatry in Israel. He really started getting impressed with himself. And then you see verse one of our text. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. You see, we were made for enjoyment. We were made for pleasure, extreme pleasure, but not for enjoying ourselves. 
We're made to enjoy God and his glory. It's way more enjoyable and it's not bringing a curse. The first catechism, if any of y'all grew up in kind of a, a more reformed liturgical household where you would ask a child, what is the chief end of man? That's the first question in the catechism and the child's to respond. The chief end of man or the, the highest uh, purpose of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. God is way more enjoyable than all the alternative enjoyments that we pervert. We are meant to enjoy God, but Solomon carried on with his enjoyment and his pleasure, and he tried to cut God out of the deal entirely. And despite inquiring more and more and more stuff and things that were supposed to bring him pleasure, he began, he began to be more and more decreased in his ability to enjoy pleasure. And he got desperate. Verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly. Now that first part, how to cheer my body with wine, I tried that. Uh, I, I came to know Jesus through campus ministry in high school. And so the, the drunkenness stuff I left in my BC days, the before Christ days. But I, I still kind of can relate to this whole lay hold on folly thing. I think my quest to perfect the dad joke might be one example of that. But I, I don't know other than that what it means to lay hold on folly. I think it's kind of confusing. Anywho, verse four, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. Now check out all the self-references here. I want, you to, I want you to geek out with me for a second in the whole area of grammar. Uh, from my count in these 11 verses, there are 35, whether it's a, a, a pronoun, object of the sentence, the subject, there are 35 references to self in these 11 verses. See, his mind was out of balance. He had lost his heart for God. And so the atrocities that follow, verse 7, I bought male and female slaves. He's talking about human beings. And then just gets right to cattle as if it's the same. It says, I had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions, as if it were one and the same. Herds and flocks, more than any who had come before me in Jerusalem. For people reference these verses as if, people trying to speak against the Bible, as if these verses are endorsing slavery. Which is absurd because the opposite is clear. But again, if we want to just kind of use the Bible out of context against the Bible, anyone can do that. But this shows the harsh reality of what we're all culpable of. When we make ourselves the center of the universe, we will justify all sorts of atrocities like slavery in order to persist in our path. Think of R. Kelly, been in the news a lot lately. He started out with a heart to, to use his music to honor God, a lot of gospel music at the start and gained some power and, and he had to keep these plates spinning. And he had to fulfill himself. 
And with that power, he, he began to abuse the power. And before you know it, there's young women enslaved under his perversion. And if we think, oh, I can't relate to that at all, then we might just be down a path already that's not very redemptive. Because we can all relate to abusing power and dishonoring God. You see, with R. Kelly, as things begin to get exposed, he thinks the thing that he needs most is to, to redeem his name. Because his name is what's most needed to persist in his path, in his career, in his fatherhood. But... No, what he needs most is to repent and be restored in the name of God. That's what Solomon needed. That's what I need every day. That's what we need. The holiness of being redeemed and restored and grown prophetically under the name of God. Verse 8. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got Singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Now, when all was said and done, we know from the story that Solomon had acquired, as if again there were possessions, over a thousand women to be in his harem. I think like 400 wives and 700 concubines. Could have been the other way around. 700, you know. But either way, over a thousand women, if he were to be with one different woman every night, he could go almost three years before repeating it. And if this could satisfy a man, you would think that he would have been at peace. But see, he was becoming every bit as tortured and reduced as the years went on as the dead Hugh Hefner. And sometimes I remember this difficult part of reality with Solomon when I compare it to the temptations that the enemy wants to, to bring on my eyes. Didn't work for him, devil. Shut up. The Bible is, again, uncomfortably easy to relate to. A chasing after the wind, he calls it. It's a spitting into the wind, the message translation says. Worthless, these pursuits. No woman can ultimately satisfy a man, just like no car can get you to the moon. Only a spaceship gets you to the moon, and only God can satisfy your heart, ultimately. And idolatry is getting these things confused and trying to treat things like they're God, and we end up abusing everything and dishonoring God. Verse 9, so I became great. He says, and surpassed all who were before me. Stop there. No, no, he didn't become great. So he'd forgotten this. He never became great. He was given greatness by the great one and he was squandering it. So many times after Israel goes into the land, I was just reading the, the end of the book of Joshua this morning. And God continues to remind the people, I gave you cities that you did not build. I gave you vineyards that you did not plant. No, your greatness doesn't come from your bootstraps being pulled up or whatever that American analogy is. See, what he thought was his hard work was not his hard work. What he thought was his greatest moment was his worst. His highest point was his lowest. 
He lost hold of that ironic secret that his father had known and that Jesus later clarified. Matthew 20, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Or Matthew 23, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Now go back a few centuries in what he was supposed to know. The people were to enter into Canaan and it, it wasn't to kill people as much as it was to kill sin and to purify the land. But the conceit of men like Solomon and those who came after him and the men around him and women shows that they weren't conquering sin. They were being conquered by sin. That's why one of the great reformers said, always be killing Sin. We are made to kill sin in our lives and not be killed by it. See, he, he lost sight of this, and that's why he, he had a backwards and reverted mindset for what human greatness was. That's why he allowed Molech worship, Kamosh worship, back into the land where people were sacrificing their children on the altar to to garner some favor from some false god. You see, when we reject God in every society in history, one of the main losers in the deal is the powerless, the children. And don't, let's not think for a minute that, oh, my evil doesn't affect other people. This man lost it like we tend to do. And the story of conceit is all throughout humanity. We get conceited. We, we, we create idols out of things. Idolatry is not just some Eastern thing with metal things. It's a state of the heart that we're prone to. We're conceited with ourselves and our stuff. Martin Luther says that we're like idle factories. We take God's covenant to bless us and then we start worshiping the blessing as if it's God. We do this with things like sex, work, companionship, all great things from God, but not God things to be God. We acquire so much of the gifts of God that were meant to well up in us and spring forth from us. And we were meant to share it with the world, but not just on Instagram. In fact, this is one of the pet peeves. I'll take a side note, a little rabbit trail for a minute. Man, something bothers me about so often what I see when someone posts something and they're hashtag blessed. Most of the time, they might just be hashtag conceited. <laughs> and they just don't know any better to like share the blessing in a good contact context with other people in a, in a discipleship stream to share that blessing and to process it rightly. I know that's my struggle, even though I don't use that hashtag. And I think it's yours too. Verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. See, this word eyes is so crucial because the relationship of this conceit and sin to the eyes is woven all throughout the Bible. I mean, right from the very beginning, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve were tempted with, they sinned with their eyes before they sinned with anything else. It says, when she saw that the tree was good for fruit and a delight, 
to the eyes. She believed the lie in her eyes first. She took and ate and gave some to her husband. And since that point, we've had the seed of this lie in our eyes, in our bodies. The wickedest point in Israelite history in the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Is there anything wrong with doing what's right? No, there's just a lot wrong with what we think is right because there's something fundamentally flawed with our eyes. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 6, if the eyes are good, the whole body will be full of light. But if the eyes are bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. And let me just tell you, the eyes are bad. And LASIK's not going to fix it. Only Jesus can fix it. Going on to verse 10. I kept my heart from my heart. No pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. And here you have it. He's totally forgotten that. He didn't get blessed because of anything with his toil. And he's just stream of thought justifying himself. Talking about reward for my labor and my toil. I do this way too much. In kind of my own profession. I'll, I'll kind of hear someone with a good idea. God will show me something most often through another person. And before long, I just kind of convinced myself that that was my idea. You know, my uh, intellectual toil. Nope. And I think we all do this self-accreditation, self-justification. You know, we'll say things like, you deserve it. You worked hard. You earned it. But even work is fundamentally a gift from God that he gives us. And we can work hard, not necessarily fundamentally to earn something in the future, but to honor the God who gave us the gift fundamentally. That's what works for. It's a worship thing. Now, I, I grieve for Solomon, and, and I'm critical, mostly because I, I see so much of my own sin in Solomon. He, remember, he got wisdom, and then everything else came with it. You know, Jesus himself said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You could say his wisdom. And all these things will be added to you. But Jesus never said to seek all these things. We're supposed to receive all these things, share all these things, let all these things go, and keep seeking his kingdom. And Solomon got the goods and forgot the source. I think we do that all the time. So let's back up from this, kind of zoom out for a second. This whole passage can be summarized, I think, through this two-word phrase that he at least three-peats in this section. He says at least three times, for myself. So here goes that one takeaway that I wanted to leave you with. Often our deepest sin is seen not in what we do, but for whom we do it. Often our deepest sin is seen not in what we do, but for whom we do it. I mean, at what point does Solomon go wrong here? At what point was he like really sinning? Was it his first slave? What is, was it his second wife? No, I think it was the moment God knew it. 
where he turned his eyes away from God being the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega of whatever it was that he was doing. Often our deepest sin is seen not in what we do, but for whom we do it. And think about most of the atrocities of history, the bad stuff in the news is fueled not simply by the things that we do as human beings, but the conceit of doing things for me. I mean, the very first sin in the garden with Adam and Eve was driven by this question, what is best for me, for my eyes, my delight, my pleasure? It's a bad question. Fast forward in economic history. What is best for our southern economy? And this question drove the persistence of human slavery in North America. Or other other side of the pond. What is best for our motherland to survive after World War I? And in the pain and the wrong question, you see the rise of Nazism. Or in our culture today, what's best for modern corporations? And we'll overlook things like climate change and the exploitation of workers living le- earning less than a minimum wage, a minimum uh, living wage. What is best for the war on drugs? And we see the mass incarceration of black people. What is best for my body? And we'll disregard the innocent bodies of unborn babies. What is best for my happiness in this marriage? And we will break vows with our eyes, with our words, with our bodies in marriage. And here's a big one. What is best for me, for my sexual preferences? It's the question of our day, is it not? Katie Faust is a children's rights campaigner and she's brought a whole new dynamic to this question. The thought that considering the good of a society's children should go above the preferences of a society's adults. When she was baited on a television interview to say something controversial, she responded, regardless of our preferences, Children have rights, and the onus needs to be on the adults to consider the rights of children rather than children fitting into an adult's lifestyle. You see, so much of our sin is not just an argument about what we're doing, but why and for whom. From Adam and Eve to our modern digression of progression, when we consider ourselves and our delights above God's holiness, this conceit brings wrong answers, wrong actions, because we're asking the wrong questions. It's not just that we do things wrong, it's that we're doing almost nothing primarily unto God. Now consider your life, your ambition, your dream. What if gaining success for yourself would lead to your worst failure? What if God mercifully is allowing you to not get what you would call success? 
What if you don't see his mercy in that for decades? Will you still follow him? Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Don't be a successful failure. Don't aim for it. Don't envy it. Consider Solomon. I can look back in my relatively short part of my life and see the preservation of God's goodness in my life in those moments where I have failed to achieve what I've defined as success in certain areas. And I see God's goodness in that. I actually see that it's lined me up for actual success in God's eyes. I'm not telling you to not aim for success. I'm warning you that it's so easy and common to aim wrongly. Only Christ can satisfy you. And Jesus doesn't want to be your number one. He wants to be your one and only. He says, I am God and there is none other. Beside me there is none. You will have no gods beside me. My wife didn't sign up to be uh, the best among my women. She signed up to be my wife, forsaking all others to keep herself only for me. And perhaps your life often feels a little bit disillusioned and confused like Solomon's. And maybe you really do love God. But you haven't quite sent away the other loves. I'm going to read a very severe thing that Jesus says. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. For it would be better to enter heaven with one eye than with both of them be thrown into hell. Solomon gained everything and lost his soul. Think about Jesus, the true king. The anti-type of Solomon's greatness. Jesus lost everything to gain it all back and more for us, eternal riches. He gave his perfect life to win our sinful souls. He gave his flawless blood to cleanse our conceited hearts and to make us new, white as snow. The gospel is the good news that God became man in Jesus Christ. He lived the life that we should have lived, that Solomon should have lived. He achieved the greatness that we never aimed rightly for. And we didn't. And that's why he chose to trade his consequence for ours. He died the death that we should have died in our place. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead, conquering our perversions, our death, our failures of greatness, and giving us the power to walk in new life. And he gives us the power to walk and live unwasted lives. I want to leave you with a quote from C.T. Studd, who coming out of college, he traded, foolishly traded, greatness in the eyes of the world and a a career that was set up for him to begin one of the greatest missions movements in world history. And he says this, he says, only one life will soon be passed. 
Only what's done for Christ will last. Would you stand to your feet with me, please?